Well, good morning again. Let me invite you to turn in your uh, worship folder to page three. I'm going to read the passage that's printed there. It comes from the New Testament letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to follow along in your worship guide or if you've brought a Bible in the Bible. And then I'm going to invite you to respond as printed below. Would you listen now with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray together. Oh, our Father and God, we come to this time and we sit under these words, and Lord, I recognize that as we do, uh, no doubt we come to this place from all sorts of uh, different places in our own lives. Some of us have come in here and we have the joy of spring, we have the celebration of Easter uh, deep in our bones. Others of us have come in here and we are in a far different place. Some of us come in here hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually. Some of us come in here discouraged financially. Lord, some of us come in here bearing unimaginable burdens that are consuming our minds, that are keeping us awake at night. And Lord, I recognize further that some of us come in here uh, with a deep and a long and established belief and trust and faith in You, and others of us come in here uh, mostly with questions about You, and still others of us are here and uh, we feel quite convinced uh, that You're not real that these words that were just read uh, won't have much help in our lives. And Lord, I pray, therefore, that whatever place we find ourselves in today, whether we're here in celebration or in anguish, whether we're here in belief in You, believing in You, or doubting very much in You, I pray that You'd give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, we are all ultimately the same. We've all come with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from You, to know You, and to be changed by You. And I pray that you would show us how you have met this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, amen. I want to welcome you all. I want to welcome the kids that are with us. This is a, a kind of a special Sunday. We've included a, a page, if you, if you have one of those, for the kids to do some drawings. But I do want to tell the parents, I'm not going to be calling out the drawings. So the kids can go at their own pace, or you can help them uh, move from one to the next. And if they do the drawings well and do a good job, kids, uh, not talking or getting up, uh, unless you need to whisper a question to a parent, then we want to invite you to receive a prize following the worship service. Title of my short uh, message today is First and Foremost. And I'm asking this question, what is first in the mind of God Right? If you believe in God, if you'll even be open to the fact that maybe God is real, that maybe He exists, that maybe there's a creator to all that we see, 
that we are not simply the product of randomness, if you'll be open to that this morning, and I do want to ask you to be open to that, okay? If you, if you would at least be open to that possibility, and then I want to ask you to be open to a second possibility. So supposing God does exist, supposing He is real, and then suppose that He decided to communicate some things to His creatures, Right? We call those things, we call that the Bible, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures. And as Christians, we believe that God is real, that He has created this reality that we live in, and that He has decided to communicate to us by way of the Scriptures. Right? That's, our, that's our framework in which we work. Now, if that's the case, what is of highest importance to God that you understand. Or put another way, if you could only understand one thing from God, what would He want that one thing to be? I think about this question. Um, uh, you know, my, my mom passed a couple of years back, and I remember very vividly uh, as I spoke to her the last time, and she had some, in her mind, some very important things to say. It was so difficult for her to speak. Uh, she died of ALS, and if you know uh, ALS victims, they can barely talk uh, as they get to the end. And so she struggled with all her might to tell me basically one thing, right? A friend of mine lost his brother to cancer, and his brother had about 12 months of uh, foreknowledge that he was going to die, like that's what the doctors told him. And so he set out to make videotapes for his kids for every significant milestone in their lives that they could watch, that he could communicate to them. One of the, I think, the most moving experiences I've had in a long time is actually going up to the 9-11 Museum in New York. If you haven't been there, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, folks in charge there have done a, an amazing job honoring and remembering uh, those victims. And one of the most heartbreaking stories uh, that's come out of 9-11 is folks on the upper floors of the towers when they knew that they couldn't get out, right? Many of them would call family and they would have about, you know, a minute or so to communicate certain things. And it's in those times that you really know what is of first importance, right? We like to say things are of first importance. So, for example, I'll just give you one example. Most of us, if you're a parent here today, one way you might answer this question, and one way you probably live to a certain extent, is you say, what's of highest importance is that I help my kids be healthy, right? Highest importance, I help my kids be healthy. And in fact, I have seen the most driven executives basically halt their professional life if one of their children gets to be you know, hospitalized with a serious condition. And that does lend evidence to the fact that yeah, they consider the health of their kids to be most important, right? But I do also want to point out, I want to confess something to you. Um, I hope this is okay. We'll find out. I do want to confess to you that uh, as a dad, I cook a lot of Annie's shells and cheese, okay? <laughs> Which is sort of my compromise because the kids love it. It's easy, not the healthiest, but it is organic, I'm told. All right, so I get some points for that. Right, but what I'm, what I'm showing in doing that is that, you know, maybe, there are, may, maybe what I th would say is of first importance isn't always the case. I'm looking at the positions and back, and I'm sorry, guys, but uh, <laughs> sorry for that. 
Well, ask this question, what is of first importance to you? What is of first importance to God? Right? I want you to think about that for a moment. God has communicated to us, we believe as Christians, in the pages of Holy Scripture. There's 66 books, a lot of content. And if you didn't tell us, you might answer this question a number of all sorts of different ways. You might say the most important thing is to know where we came from, right? to know the story of the creation of the world. And that is, I think, really important, really foundational. It's good for you to know, not of first importance. You might answer, say, it's important that we understand the stories of God's power. We're, in fact, we're doing a sermon series. I invite you to come back next week to hear this sermon series that we're calling Becoming Reacquainted with the Power of God as we look at this very topic, right? So, for example, the Israelites were able to walk through the Red Sea uh, as, as God parts the waves, and then they come crashing down upon the Egyptian military as they try to go through. Wonderful stories, right? Not first importance. And so what is of first importance in the mind of God? What is the one thing that He would have you know? If, if you don't know much about God, what's the one thing that He does, in fact, want you to know? Well, this passage makes it explicit, friends. In verse 3, the author says this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. You see, this, uh, what, what I just read there is what we summarize, what the Bible summarizes, as you'll see it in verse 1, as the gospel, right? Gospel translated literally means good news. And the idea is that, you know, when World War II ended, right, there was all sorts of news spreading around the world saying the war is over. The most substantial change that any person living uh, in this country or in Europe could imagine has just happened. There was good news to spread around. And the Bible, this is the Bible's kind of version of that, that there is good news. And I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit about why we believe it's true. All right? So the Bible has good news, which is that our lives do not depend on our ability or our morals. Right? So we see that where it says Christ died for our sins. And if you're a Christian this morning, then you believe that you are far weaker, far more sinful, to use the Bible's word, then you know, but at the same time, you are more deeply loved than you could ever imagine. That's, that's what we refer to as the gospel, that reality. You see, the Bible takes injustice, it takes oppression, it takes dishonesty, it takes greed, it takes sexual unfaithfulness, it takes laziness very seriously, and it names those things as examples as sin, and that they're wrong, and that they move God very deeply, that He's disturbed by uh, the injustice that some of you have suffered. He's very disturbed by that, right? He's also disturbed, frankly, by the kinds of things that some of you have done, right? The way that some of you treat your spouses, some of us treat our spouses, God's very angry about that. He's very angry when we don't live selflessly, when our selfishness years its ugly head. He's very angry at that. He's very moved by that. 
But at the same time, he was moved by something greater even than that. You see, God was moved by the depth of his love to rescue people from the consequences of their sin. And we call that the gospel. God was moved by the depth of his love. And the way that he did that was by way of Christ dying for our sins. That's what we believe as Christians. And Ironworks believes that the gospel is the first thing. It is the main thing. So we actually say this in our member's guide. We say, Ironworks Church believes the gospel, literally the good news, of Jesus Christ is not a story contained in the vast volumes of Scripture, but is the story to which all the parts point. A proper grasp of the gospel avoids legalism and liberalism, moralism and pragmatism. And what Paul says here in the first paragraph, he says, it is by the gospel in which you stand, right? In which you stand. And what he's doing there is using an analogy of someone who is under assault, right? When you're under assault, if you're playing a game with little kids where you're, they're trying to knock you down and you're like, you know, up here, we can try this out. No, never mind. Um, you're like this, and then you try to not be tipped over. You're trying really hard to stand as kids are just like coming at you and, you know, punching you and pulling on your hair, and, you know, you're just trying to really uh, not let them get to you. You're standing. Paul says, in the same way, you cannot withstand the assaults of this world. You cannot un- you cannot withstand the difficulties that you're going through. You cannot withstand the reality of evil in this world unless you know, believe, treasure, and receive the gospel. It's interesting. When Christy and I were being considered for church planting, we went to this very rigorous assessment center. Um, I, I, was really, uh, <laughs> I was really not excited about it at first. I mean, it really... I would say, not an exaggeration, it really felt like we were in the dark room with the light on, okay? You know, um, being waterboarded. So they were asking us all sorts of questions about our marriage, about our lives, about our morals, about our philosophy of ministry, all these things with the outcome of saying, are you or are you not recommended to go through three years of hell, also known as church planting, and make it out on the other side. That's what they said. And you know what they said at the end of that? They did recommend us, but they said one thing. They said, we think that you should spend more time with the gospel. That's what they told us. And now I want you to think about that for a moment. They just recommended we go plant a church, right? After the light was on and, you know, the secrets were revealed and all this, you know, income was talked about. All, it, is, it is very thorough, friends. After all of that, After they evaluated my ability to preach, as they looked at philosophy of ministry, they said, we recommend you do this. However, we think if you're going to make it, you need to become more deeply connected to the gospel, right? Now, what's what's wrong with this picture here, right? You're going to plant a church, but you, you you still have areas to grow in the gospel. What were they saying? Why were they saying that? Well, what they're saying, I've come to find out, is that you never stop ever learning to receive the gospel more, right? I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Some of you have been a Christian longer than I've been alive, right? And what what these folks were communicating to us is they were saying, you know, you know it a little bit, and we think that God has called you to do this, so he's going to equip you, but you don't know it well enough. 
You need to go learn it some more. And so that's what they recommended. And it's because in the gospel, it's how we stand. Secondly, it's how Christians believe that we are saved. And so the the theology goes something like this, that in the beginning, sin comes into the world as man and woman, represented by Adam and Eve, decide that they are more persuaded by the logic of the serpent who says, God's not for you. He's only protecting himself. If you go out from under his authority, life will be better. They were persuaded by that argument. They take the fruit. Sin comes into the world. And immediately what happens is that they go from being unashamed to hiding, feeling shame. The garden now has a new reality, and that's called thorns, right? But the most painful reality, of course, is the infiltration of death. where he says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, Adam and Eve, if you know the story, and if you don't, you can go read it in Genesis chapter 3, very beginning of the Bible. They don't fall down immediately after they sin, but instead what happens is that death becomes part of their experience. Funerals become a regular occurrence. Their family is torn apart by jealousy and murder almost right away. Every kind of sexual dysfunction that you can imagine becomes part of this world. Marriages uh, now divorce quite frequently. Our bodies break. Many of us, in fact, I would dare say all of us, have someone, probably multiple people in our lives who are struggling with cancer. This world becomes infiltrated by death. And that, the Bible says, is a result of sin. But God has promised to bring those of you who would receive this good news, who would receive what He has done in Christ, where He has absorbed all of your sins, right? If you're a Christian here today, He says that He's absorbed all of your sins. He's taken them away from you. He's separated them as far as the east as the west. If you will receive that, if you will come to Him in what the Bible calls faith and repentance, then He promises that one day you will be brought to a place where there is no more sin, sickness, suffering, sorrow, and death. And that is the promise of the gospel. So that's what we believe as Christians, and I'm going to talk about two reasons why we believe that, that Paul gives here. We believe that because of the testimony of the Scriptures and the historical reality. Okay, the testimony of the Scriptures and the historical reality. So Paul says here, he says, I've delivered to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins, and then he'll say this language, this phrase twice, in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures. And what Jesus will go quite a bit further, actually, on this point, after he's risen from the dead, his disciples are very confused people. They have no idea what's going on. They don't know what's what's happening. You know, the women are crazy. They're saying he's risen from the dead. They have faith first, right? It takes the guys a while to get there. Oh, and all these women are telling us that Jesus is raised from the dead, and, you know, not only did our leader die, but now the women have gone crazy, right? What are we doing? They start walking to this town called Emmaus, and they don't recognize Jesus, but he comes up and walks with them, and he says, why are you so sad? What's going on? And they say, have you not heard what's happened here recently? We had this person we thought was the Messiah, but now he's gone. 
And there are now reports that he's alive, so we're not even able to fully grieve him because we don't even know what's going on. And let me read to you his response to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. He says this, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory?' And then here's the key point. "'And beginning with Moses and all the prophets,' He interpreted them to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. You see, what, Bible, what, what Jesus explains to the disciples there is that the entirety of the Bible, every single book, must be read and understood in reference to Him. I want you to understand that every single book of the Bible, every story, every phrase ultimately is connected to those things which He accomplished. So, I'll give you some examples. Even in our Genesis chapter 3, right after sin enters the world, uh, in chapter 3 verse 16, there is a prophecy about the seed of the woman, as it's called, crushing the head of the serpent. And it's understood that Jesus crushes the head of the serpent as He is born of a woman and defeats Satan on the cross. Or in the law, uh, Moses says, a prophet will come after me, that you must listen to, or in David, he, uh, we understand that the son of David will sit on the throne forever. Most of, all of his sons did not do that. Many of them didn't uh, do so well at all. But Jesus comes as the son of David who eternally sits on the throne. Isaiah tells us that the servant of God will come and bear the sins of his people. Malachi predicts the coming of God himself that's manifested in the coming of Jesus. And one researcher said this, that there are at least 117 prophecies, appearances, and foreshadowings of Christ in the law, at least 144 prophecies, appearances, or foreshadowing in the writings, it's a section of the Old Testament, and then at least 153 prophecies, appearances, and foreshadowings in the prophets. So a minimum total for the entire Old Testament, therefore, is 414. And what Paul is eager for his readers to understand, and what I am eager for you to understand, is that the entirety of God's communication has its laser focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That He is the one that all the parts point to. And, you know, even uh, secular scholars even will say, yeah, we believe that prophet Isaiah was written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Right? Even secular uh, historians will agree with this. Yeah, it's written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And yet you can read in this work that Jesus was so clearly predicted and even described before anything happened. And Jesus himself is eager for this to be uh, received as he is uh, constantly quoting the Scriptures throughout his life. Right, so, Paul says, we believe this is true because the Scriptures have all pointed towards this day. And Jesus says, all the Scriptures ultimately point towards me. But what if you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, Darren, that's nice, but I don't actually agree with the things that you said at first, right? That there is a God and that He has communicated. I'm open to the fact that there's a God, but I'm not sure that I'm going to believe that on the basis of Scripture alone. Well, Paul anticipates that objection and so he goes beyond that to the issue of history. 
And he says, for example, in verse 5, he says that the risen Christ appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You see, what Paul is doing here in this letter, he's saying, if you don't believe me, I can summon hundreds of people who can bear witness to this reality. And when this letter was written, it was written so close to the events of Jesus that it would be so easy to disprove, right? If you were a researcher of of any uh, competency, you could disprove this so easily if it wasn't true, right? You could have testimony of, of the body being where it was, and you could find all sorts of reasons why this wasn't true. But Christianity spread more and more and more and more against all sorts of opposition, and these claims effectively went unchallenged. Skeptics insist that uh, Jesus never died on the cross, as the Bible claims. And I'm quoting now from uh, researcher Lee Strobel. He says this, one of the first things I discovered, to my surprise, is that historians consider Jesus Christ's death on a cross to be a non-controversial fact. And I want to be clear about this. Historians consider his death to be a non-controversial fact. As the Journal of American Medical Association concluded, the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. We have multiple independent reports of his death in the documents that make up the New Testament, and we have at least five ancient sources outside the Bible that corroborate that he died on a cross. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. One New Testament scholar, atheist Gerd Ludman of Vanderbilt University, calls Jesus' death on the cross an indisputable fact. Now, guys, this is, these are mostly uh, secular uh, academics, historians, and they're saying you cannot argue with the historical reality that there was a man named Jesus who did, in fact, die, in fact, on a cross. But more than that, I want to read to you uh, a version of Jewish historian Josephus, and this is a translation from the 10th century Arabic text, and it actually is toned down from other versions. So when I read this, understand that other versions actually, this, the, what I'm about to read is toned down. This is what Josephus says. He's chronicling the history of Israel, and he says this, at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. And friends, I want to help you appreciate what happened here. You see... Uh, we, we live in an era of uh, what's referred to as fake news, right? We live in an era where the news has to be questioned more than ever so in the past. When we possess the ability to validate things by way of the internet, we live in a time and a place where the news is questioned more than any, any time probably uh, in at least modern history, right? And so we're used to people fabricating things. But here's the problem with alleging that these men and women fabricated this reality, Here's the main problem. What did it get them? What did the disciples receive 
from making up a story? What did they... What was their lot in life from saying that there was a man, Jesus Christ, he's not there, the body's gone, he raised from the dead, 400 people saw him, many of whom are still alive. What did it get them and what did it get their followers? Well, the answer is until the fourth century, it basically got them torment and death of all kinds, all kinds of torment, right? One was crucified upside down. Christians, uh, we're told, were lit on fire by Emperor Nero for their faith. So I want to ask you, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, I think it's just fabricated, you know, there's no reason to believe this, it's just, you know, they, they made it up and they stole the body and they, you know, threw it in the bottom of the sea. Why? Why would they do that? And why would they maintain that even to death, right? Unlike others that we know that spread uh, rumor for personal gain, they, this reality was spread only at profound personal cost. It was not until the fourth century that it became socially acceptable to be Christian, right? For 300 years, it came at a profound and tremendous cost, yet there is little argument in the world that the most influential human being of all time, whether you believe uh, in him or not, is Jesus Christ, that more history of the world has been impacted by him than any other man, that there was, in fact, a revolution. So, friends, this is our brief testimony this morning. Uh, whether you're here today and you have been a Christian for a very long time, or whether you're here today and you are far from that, I want to ask you this question. What is first and foremost for you? In light of what I've said, right, and I want to I ask those of you who are sitting here and you are not Christians today, um, you're here for some other reason, curiosity, family, right? It's just what I do on Easter. You're not a Christian here today. Are you sure that the 72 years that you will most likely live on this earth are, the, are all that, that is? Are you sure if you have children, right, that you will have simply maybe 40, 50 years with them and then there will be no more? that you will go into the ground and that your consciousness and your life as you know it will cease to exist. Are you confident in that? Right? Or is there something in your soul that indicates that there is more than, all that, than what we know here on this earth? That there is something more? That there is a God who has designed you, who has created you, who was intervening in your life, who has communicated in the scriptures, and who, the gospel says, sent his son to absorb the sins of his people. Perhaps today would be the day that he makes that clear enough that you would receive it. And if you have received it already, perhaps this is a day where your life can become recalibrated upon that which is first and foremost. Let me pray for us.